founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Hi, Tom. How are you today? I am wonderful, John. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty groovy. Um, so talk to me about, uh, let's see here, I'm reading this. I want to make sure I get it right. Samara Campbell, right? Joining a panel for Crane's Chicago Business. What's this all about, Tom? It's about mental health in the, uh, in the, in the, in the emotional health in the workplace. And um, Samara has been our HR leader for, gosh, 20, over 20 years. Best in the business on people relations, employee relations, and and really what we call almost the human concierge of of really getting to know know the team and the staff and working with them and making sure that we're doing everything as an employer that that we possibly can to give them the security and the the comfort of a company that's behind stands behind them. What does mental health in the workplace mean? Well, I think it really means mental health. Period. Um, I, I believe that how someone's handling things in their personal life and workplace, I've never been able to compartmentalize them. I know that it, that it affects me. And so we want to we do two things is, number one, know that it's okay to have problems at home and realize that it's going to affect you here, and vice versa, that we know that you're going to have work stresses yeah. and uh, you make sure that they don't have a, a, a negative impact or a continuous negative impact on your family life. I wonder how you can legally or tactfully, and those aren't the same thing, but I wonder how you address those issues. That is, somebody's mental health is their business, and so I wonder what you can say or what you can do as an employer or a manager. Well, there's definitely, there's definitely legalese, John, and I agree with that. But I think as, as mental health becomes, you know, it wasn't that long ago that mental health and therapy wasn't covered on insurance, and now it is. And the ability for somebody to do their job if they're not at at mental having having strong mental health is the same way that somebody can't do their job if they need to type and their arms are broken. And and if we're going to start viewing the human being as a, overall holistically of what they need to be able to do their job, yeah. we have to look at that. And it's not a matter of discrimination; it's a matter of ability to execute the work. And I think that we should hold employees to high expectations on the ability to do it, but we should also, as employers, be able to support them in that endeavor. And that's really the goal. So I wonder what that looks like then. Is it time off? Is it counseling? Everybody always goes to that, John. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think that, that work can still be done while we cope and grip and learn, and, and a lot of it is... Um, what we think we're capable of versus what we're incapable of. And those are two different things. And a lot of times, if given an out, people will take an out. Now, I think that, that therapy is a huge part of this. And the way you teach that is by being vulnerable and authentic. So I've been going to therapy for over 15 years, and I share that with the company often on town halls, in team meetings, and I'm one to, to always share that. And so is a lot, many members of my executive team. On the flip side, I've got many members who don't go to therapy, and, and, and so they have nothing to share. And so I think the, the lead by example is important in all aspects, not just work ethic. Samara Campbell is on a panel from Crane's Chicago Business on addressing mental health in the workplace. Is that something people can sign up for or watch, or what, what's going on there? Do you know? Yeah, it's a virtual, it's a virtual panel. And so um, something we're really excited about, if you go to cranes.com, 
you'll be able, cranechicago.com, um, you'll be able to, to register there. Okay. And what about this story in the Wall Street Journal? I'll just read you the first paragraph. Your calendar is full of meetings. There are weekly check-ins, one-on-ones, hybrid planning calls, the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, one gathering in flames, passions like no other, and that's the 8 a.m. meeting. Whether an early morning meeting is a must-do or a sign of management overreach depends on your feelings about work-life boundaries. What do you think about asking your team to be in the conference room at a meeting at 8 a.m., Tom? <laughs> so I thought you were going to say. I knew you were going to say that. I think that, that if somebody doesn't want to work at 8 a.m. and the company wants to work at 8 a.m., they should go work someplace else. That concludes our conversation with Tom Gimble, the founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Seriously, we'll talk about this more next time, but I, 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 that's the short shorthand on it. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the warm temperatures, John. See you next week. Here's Philip Weiss, the president of SciFarth at Work. Hi, Philip. Welcome back. Hi, John. Good to talk to you. Uh, remote work about face. What's this? Yeah, this is a, a trend that's uh, not entirely new, but it is definitely picking up pace. Uh, as uh, many of your listeners know, uh, so many employers have adopted the uh, hybrid model, let people work at home some of the week, have them come into the office part of the week. That's changing at a surprising rate. As many employers have said, okay, it's time to rope people back in for more of the weekdays. Sometimes that's three, four, even five days a week. And for employees that got used to this uh, more flexible lifestyle, it's it's a bit sudden and it feels like an about face. Seems like we've been having this conversation for a while, haven't we? That is the idea that... It's now three days in the office, four days in the office. Uh, what's, what's changed? Yeah, I think the obstacles uh, that stood in the way of companies being more demanding uh, have fallen away. I mean, obviously, we had the, the COVID fear. We had an employee market, candidate market. Uh, there's, those are less emphasis points for owners. So employees that felt, John, that their workplace was immune or somehow was going to now have this permanent default of half and half or three days a week at home are realizing that's simply not something they could count on. So it's really a rude awakening for employees, but you're absolutely right. It's a trend, as I've noted, that we've been seeing, but now it's certainly accelerating. Well, is it more common in some kinds of companies or businesses? And by the way, you and I know this is all kind of a a non-conversation for people to work in factories or shops or plants or stores or schools. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't have the luxury of having this conundrum, but for those for whom it is an issue, is it industry-specific? Are some areas more about this than others? Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Tech is a big area that I think has seen this about-face happen more dramatically and more recently. But what's also fascinating is small and mid-sized office uh, sites are now jumping on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we really haven't seen. You get these big headlines, large employers making this this big pronouncement. But it's now really filtering through to all kinds of white-collar environments and different company sizes. 
Is it the expectation that it'll be better for everybody, certainly the company, if people are in the office? Because you and I hear all the time stories about people saying, I'm more productive at home. I don't have the commute. I'm not busy chatting with people. I mean, I presume the only reason to do this is because it's better for the bottom line. Is that a given? Yeah, it's not a given. Uh, This is sort of the boss's or manager's prerogative that's driving people back into the office. Uh, there certainly are there's certainly anecdotal evidence, John, that being together, uh, particularly in creative environments, can spur more collaboration, better results, more productivity. But it's not a foregone conclusion. So it's really the bosses wanting to see the people, have access to the people, have those meetings. And, and you really raise a critical point because what we found talking to clients is if you're pulling people back to the office more days a week, it's critical that you fill those days with meaningful collaborative activities. Uh, it can't just be because you want a couple more meetings with all hands attending. So how you communicate why you're doing this, the prior successes you may have seen from in-person collaboration, and making that work as meaningful and valuable as possible from the eyes of the employee becomes essential because, as you said, they have a different view of what works for them and what works for the company. I wonder if some of these managers are just like, hey, if I've got to come in, you've got to come in too. (laughs) I want you to be miserable with me on the commute and the expense. Uh, We saw a survey this week or last week, and Philip, it was about the thing that people most want in order to come back to work. And the number one item on the list was compensation for commuting costs. Um, Does that track with what you've been finding out? Absolutely does, John. I mean, what's interesting is you mentioned two issues that connect directly. These commuter complaints, and sometimes the complaints, John, dovetail directly with the fact that the manager or the executives live closer to the office than the employee does. So that's something that we know is top of mind. That relates to what we call the compensation crunch, which is to say employees at their next salary review or even before it are now demanding some kind of what they view as factored in compensation or compensatory increase for the fact that they're at the office. And it may not only be the commuter time. It may be the fact that they could operate at home with their pajama bottoms on, and that's a perk. They can't put a price tag on, but they actually are saying it's worth something, and they want higher pay as a result of giving it up. Should should employers then – it's going to cost them more to get people back in the office, in theory. Um, Should they, in fact, expend more capital to entice or at least make people happy coming back to the office, or should they say, hey, the pandemic is over? We didn't pay you for commuting before the pandemic. We don't have to pay you now. What should the companies do? Yeah, well, it's this, it's this really interesting balancing act and analysis because part of it relates to how the market looks in terms of hiring the candidate's power or the employer's power. If people actually feel that there's an important element in maintaining the security of a job, you have an obligation to show them that being at work will benefit everybody. At the same time, looking at compensation across the board and realizing we don't want to lose people. If we want them in the office for three months and then we lose them permanently, that doesn't serve our long-term interests. Therefore, let's look at compensation in general, but also make the work as valuable and meaningful as possible. So all of these factors 
become important from the employer's perspective. Philip Weiss, president of Seifarth at Work, S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H, SeifarthatWork.com. Always interesting, Philip. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. One of the note here about Tom Gimbel a moment ago, laughing at the idea that some businesses will have an 8 a.m. meeting and some employees don't want to be at an 8 a.m. meeting. Hey, John, I'm listening to your workplace conversation. It's great. I'm a retired special ed teacher, and I had to laugh because we had team meetings and sometimes meeting with parents and staff at 7 or 7.30, you name it, we did it. But one other note, 630 says, here's the issue with 8 a.m. meetings. I live in Bolingbrook and worked at a global corporation in Schaumburg. My commute varied from 45 to 60 minutes. If I had an 8 a.m. meeting, and I sometimes did, I'd leave home at 6.30 to ensure enough time to drive, park in the company's multi-story parking garage, walk to the office, go through security, take the elevator up to the fifth floor, then gather my materials, settle myself for the meeting. Tom may laugh this off, but people aren't at their best under these circumstances. Oh, and I should mention, I was a project manager with staff of my own. I'd hate to work for Tom Gimble. <laughs> Tom Gimble's having a March Madness party. They're not going to work hard that Thursday at all. It's 12.38 on WGN. Tom Fortino is the founder and principal at the Alpha Wealth Group. You want to dive in, Tom, to that conversation about 8 a.m. meetings? Should you not do that because it's... Just too much for the staff to be their best at 8 a.m.? Well, I think 8 a.m. is, uh, I think that's reasonable. Um, I think you should be ready to go at 8 a.m. So I, I have to say, now, if you're on one of those conferences, I, I don't like it when you're you're away at a conference, you can start at 9 a.m., but uh, when you're in your own bed, you're at your own place, you're going into your own work, 8 a.m., that's legitimate. That's the kind of man you want managing your money, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Buttoned up, conservative, working hard, by the book. You know, we're not cutting any corners here with Tom Fortino. He's the founder and principal at the Alpha Wealth Group. The markets took a little step back yesterday. And then we had, what was it, durable goods today, Tom? Yeah, and then consumer confidence came out today. That kind of took a little dip down. But, you know, it just keeps, I don't know, the market just keeps kind of hanging on. And so you haven't seen much, you know, much uh, of a downturn in the market. Lowe's came out today. Macy's came out. There were some retail sales that came out. Again, not really, um, and they were down. As far as the revenues were down a little bit, uh, profits were up the bottom line. But still, again, they, you see how the market reacts. It kind of keeps, not a big overreaction. It, it's still in an uptrend. Yeah. So is that the soft landing happening right before our eyes then, Tom? <laughs> well, it seems like we're kind of going that way. I, I, I don't know. It's the other, is the other shoe going to drop? I think there's still some a little nervousness there, but um, we're seeing the market kind of plow ahead here. I think they've, you know, I know maybe we're going to talk a little bit about the Fed, but I think uh, they've accepted the fact that it's not going to be maybe, maybe uh, till the summer uh, before we see any type of rate cuts, certainly not March. And so, um a lot of that stuff is baked into this. Now, the flip side to that, I guess, is a lot of that was somewhat argued. It's just like when NVIDIA came out with their earnings, when you say, okay, and they, they, they surprised to the upside, that's a good thing. So the, the question is, is, is everything set up for perfection? And what happens 
if we start to see some things falter a little bit, is that going to start uh, the downslide? That's that's kind of the concern. Well, um, about the Fed, if they were more aggressive with the rate cuts, would that what would happen to the markets overall? I'm not talking about inflation or the economy. I'm just talking about the markets. If the Fed did come out with a March rate cut, what would happen? You know, that's a great question because I'm sure you've heard this back and forth. It's the on the one hand, but on the other hand argument. Because the concern is the fact that, look, GDP, I think they're going to go out with their second read this week. I know they are on the fourth quarter GDP. And so when you're seeing the economy kind of still chugging along, um, there's concern on some, in some quarters to say, hey, and I think the Fed is definitely in this case, the last thing we want to do if the economy is doing pretty well is we're going to reduce rates and what, we're going to, we're going to fuel inflation again? So I think, you know, there's, there's a couple different sides to this. Um, I would be more on the side of uh, I think we want to just keep rates stable for now. We don't, we don't want to uh, cut them at this point based right. on what the economy is doing. Okay, so you leave the rates where they are. Too bad for those of you that want to further capitalize or buy and sell homes, but maybe this is the new normal and we'll get that. But at least that won't let inflation get ahead of anybody. Yeah. And the markets then, Tom, if, if the Fed was really slow to react, they're not going to give up a lot. I mean, I don't know what the other no. shoe is. It seems to me like this... Uh, what do they call it, uh, Goldilocks zone we're in, seems to mm-hmm. be pretty good right now. Well, I think the other shoe, we've come back to this a number of times, uh, some of this is the debt, right? It just kind of is hanging out there. When is this going to come to the fore? I don't know. Nobody really does for sure. But you can see, we've seen um, in a lot of these retail sales that have been coming out recently, they've been talking about how the consumer is really kind of starting to come down. Credit card debt is at all-time highs. It continues to go up. And so the question is, when is, number one, the consumer going to crack? Number one. Number two, and, and a lot of this debt that's rolling over, um, you know, at higher rates, that, again, is some concern. Um, and no one can say for sure what's going to happen. But certainly, I would just say don't ignore these things and because uh, they're pretty significant. So what's um, somebody who's just dollar cost averaging to do right now? What advice do you have for people that are just throwing money in a Schwab every month? Well, when it's dollar cost averaging, which is typical, obviously, with the 401ks, your employer plans, and if you're doing it on your own, um, if for the most part, if, you, if you're if you comfortable with your plan and you can stick with it, you know, the concept is keep going. Just keep doing it. The dollar cost averaging, the systematic contributions, that's what's going to make all the difference in the world, especially over time. Um, and you're going to, you're, it's going to, you know, the, the idea obviously with the dollar cost averaging is you're buying low, you're buying high, you're, you're averaging in your monies. So you're, you're somewhat mitigating some of the volatility, but the point is systematic contributions are really one of the keys to success. But would you check boxes right now to move money to more conservative portfolios or would you stay aggressive if you can? Assume your horizon is 10 or more years. Well, if it's 10 or more years, I would stay invested in this market. I just, uh, we've had this discussion many times, John, about, you know, um, we become our own worst enemy when we start moving and trying to time the market. Um, so, you know, again, you want to tailor and customize a plan based on, especially if it's 10 years, 
the probability of the market being down over a 10-year period is pretty much close to zero. Now, it's happened before, but not often. Yeah, yeah. And so you want to okay, stick to it. Here's the flip of that question, then. If your horizon is like, um, I need to start taking money out now, I am living on that income, and I've got enough. Like, I feel like I... I, I can be okay with this. What I just can't be okay with is losing a lot of it because the market mm-hmm. is a downturn. This would be the time to park some of it, right? I think, yes. If you're using it for income and you're relying on the money for your um, for your income, yeah, you, you know, could the market go up 20% over the next 10 months? Yeah. Could it go down? And that's just from a standpoint of needing income, yeah. Uh, in retirement or near retirement, you just, uh, unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately, you just have to be a little more conservative uh, in that case. Absolutely. Well, you talk, and we're out of time now, Tom, but maybe we will another day, but um, income in retirement and savings in retirement are different things, and you need to sort of imagine what that means. Tom mm-hmm. Fortino talks about that Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. here on WGN, or he'll talk about it with you in person. You can click on alphawealthgroup.com. Okay, Tom, thanks for your help today. Great. All right, you take care, John. Here's more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A new report says Chicago's income inequality gap is the 10th largest among U.S. cities. The report, conducted by financial technology company Smart Asset, shows an annual salary of at least $149,219 is needed for a Chicago household to be considered among the city's top 20% of earners. A household earning less than $27,255 is at the bottom of the scale. That means Chicago's top one-fifth of earners make about five and a half times as much as the bottom one-fifth of earners. New Orleans, New York, Atlanta, Boston, Memphis, Detroit, and Cleveland have worse income inequality and are listed ahead of Chicago. Macy's plans to close 150 stores by 2026. 50 of those stores will shutter by the end of this year as the company changes its focus to keep up with consumers' changing shopping habits. Macy's says it will expand its Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury luxury brands with plans to open smaller versions of those stores. Macy's has closed 300 stores since its stock price hit its peak in 2015. It's unclear how the Chicago area will be impacted by the store closure plan. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Yes, sir. Thank you. I've got two women on the phone with me, and they both have free money. Yeah, we got lots of free money. (laughs) We do have some free money. More about them and their free money after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox There's never been a better time to apply for thousands of dollars of scholarship money available to students. Let's begin with... Lana Shovlin, and I'm the communications director from the Illinois Pork Producers Association. Yes, the pork people have free money. We have a gold scholarship, silver scholarship, and bronze scholarship. Three of each, and no, none of them are big enough to solve all your tuition problems. The gold scholarships are $2,000 each. The silver scholarships are $1,500 each, and the bronze scholarships are $1,000 each. Okay, not a lot, but a little here and a little there. Every little bit helps, so I would be applying for any bit of aid that I could get my hands on. Yeah, I'll second that emotion. For more info, go to Illinois Pork's website. Meanwhile, down the road in Bloomington at the headquarters of Growmark, the big farmer-owned co-op, 
Madison Kepling's got free money and she's on the line. And I am the student recruiting manager. And the Girl Mark Foundation has? 55 $2,000 scholarships. And to get some of that, you need to be headed off to college or trade school this fall or be already there. Those are students that will be pursuing an agriculture or business-related degree um, or certificate. The application deadline for the Girl Mark Foundation scholarships is April 15th, <laughs> tax day. You can apply online jobs.girlmark.com under our students page. Again, April 15th for that one. For Illinois Pork, it's this Friday. If you are just now hearing about it, then I encourage you to go ahead and shoot me an email if you need to. My email address is lana at ilpork.com, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. From the farm to your belly, it's National Strawberry Day, and it's National Kahlua Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Boy, good day to get out and experience Chicago. Opening March 1st, they've got something going on at Navy Pier, which if you haven't been to Navy Pier in a while, you haven't been to Navy Pier that's me talking. But now let's talk to Derek Poitras, who is the general manager of something at Navy Pier called Flyover, which is a unique experience. Jeff, you're on WGN. I'm sorry, Derek, you're on the air. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me today. So what is this? So Flyover is a 30-minute immersive flying journey uh, that gives the perspective of Chicago in a way that you've never experienced before. It's kind of broken into three acts, and it ends with this incredible flying ride that is nine minutes long. And it really just gives you a different perspective of Chicago flying through the city, over the buildings. It's a really, really just fantastic experience. It's a virtual experience. I don't actually lift off in an aircraft, right? You do not lift off in an aircraft, but it's also not quite virtual. So we have a very large ride system that's three stories, uh, excuse me, five stories tall with a 65-foot spherical dome. And you actually mimic motions of flying through uh, flying through the city. So I'll get that sensation too, huh? Exactly. We have all types of special effects. We have wind, we have mist, we have sense of the city. Uh, it, it really is an all-encompassing journey. One of those sense marijuana? <laughs> it is not, but I will say that there's some there's some good coffee sense for sure. Um, so is this a unique thing? I, I I'm not familiar with flyover Milwaukee or other cities. Um, is this a franchise? What is this? That's a great question. So yes, we are part of a greater flyover family. Our original location is in Vancouver. It's been there for about ten years. Ironically, also located on a pier there. And then we have another location in Vegas, right on the Strip, and Iceland in Reykjavik. So this is the fourth location. Lucky us. And then I guess you've sent up drones or helicopters or somehow you've captured video, which will mimic for me flying over and zooming around Chicago, huh? That's right. So for uh, primarily, we use these advanced drone technologies that we actually had to develop ourselves because when we were learning of all the different locations that we wanted to film in, we found that we couldn't quite find the drone that did exactly the same movements and cinematography that we wanted. So we developed our own technology for that. And we did use a helicopter in certain instances, uh, but for most of the shots, it is by drone. So the journey, if you will, the flyover is how long does the, the show last? The entire ride itself is just about nine minutes, but the entire experience that you that you partake in from the moment you walk in is about thirty minutes. Got it. 
Got it. Uh, I'm fascinated. This sounds like a lot of fun, and I think it's a really smart location for you guys. There are a lot of destination events and things out there. It's out at Navy Pier, and it starts March 1st. Am I hearing that correctly, too, Derek? That's correct. Uh, this coming Friday, we open to everyone of Chicago. How much will it cost? Are there discounts for kids? What? How does that work? Absolutely. So for adults, it's only twenty four ninety nine, and then for kids, it is fourteen ninety five. And there are no height or age or restrictions. It's not like a ride at Disney, is it? So it is actually like a ride at uh, Disney or other other amusement and theme parks. We do have a minimum height requirement of forty inches. But 40 inches really isn't all that uh, all that bad. So you can have a tall three- or four-year-old experience the ride along with some of the oldest members of your family. Derek Poitras, General Manager, Flyover. You can click on experienceflyover.com. Okay, we'll see you out there, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you then. Starting March 1st at Navy Pier.